0: Are you a completer, or are you a procrastinator? Now, when the completer bites into grandma's pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving, he (laughs) has to finish the entire piece. He can't leave any on the plates. When there is a cliffhanger at the end of an episode, the completer has to watch the next episode. When the completer finishes his meal at the kitchen table, he can't leave any dishes in the sink. to clean them all right away. The procrastinator, when he returns from uh, from a trip, he leaves his suitcase unpacked for days, if not weeks. When the alarm buzzes, the procrastinator awake each morning, he strikes the snooze button like it's a -a whack-a-mole game. When the history teacher assigns a project to the procrastinator that's worth half of the class's grade, he waits until the night before to start it. The completer and the procrastinator both have misplaced motives and both can stand to learn from the other. The completer wants control, so he does whatever he can to finish the task. The procrastinator, on the other hand, wants comfort, so he does whatever he can to put off the task. Now, when there is nothing more that a completer can do to finish a task, he can stand to learn from the procrastinator's acceptance of waiting. Now, when the procrastinator does haphazard work because of how long he is delayed, he can stand to learn from the completer's diligence and responsibility. Ezra chapters 5 and 6 show us that God has the strengths, not the weaknesses, of both the completer and the procrastinator. He always finishes what he starts. And he is patient. He is never rushed. He's never frantic. It's the main point of these two chapters, the main takeaway. Though we may not see it or understand it, God always accomplishes his will through his Word. That we may not see it or understand it, God always accomplishes his will through his word. Ezra chapters 5 and 6 show us also that the Israelites began to follow the call of Ephesians 5, 1, to become imitators of God as beloved children, children to have the strengths of both the completer and the procrastinator, not the weaknesses. And we want to do the same As the Israelites, they they should not delay in doing what God had called them to do, and they should trust God as they waited for his promises to unfold. So just to bring us up to speed with where we've been so far in the book of Ezra, the Israelites returned to their homeland after being in exile for 70 years. Yet as they returned as a depleted nation, they returned and committed themselves to worship the And this commitment commitment led them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This is where God made his presence known, and this is where God provided means to reconcile sinners to himself. Now in this work, opposition arose to stop them. The people inhabiting the the land delayed the reconstruction of the temple for almost 20 years. This is where our story picks up in Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5 picks up during this time of delay. As we move through chapter 5 and 6, we'll see that during delays and oppositions, God speaks, God sees, God works, and God redeems. Those would be the headings as we move through these chapters. So first, God speaks. Let's read just verses 1 to 2 of chapter 5. That's printed in your bulletins there. Verses 1 to 2 say, Now the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. To read scripture well, we have to immerse ourselves in the perspective of the original characters and audience. You've been with us on Wednesday nights, you know the importance of this. Now many people read the Bible and their first question is, what does this mean to me? Oh, instead we should ask, what does it mean? And what what did it mean to them? And how does what it means apply to me? This is our pursuit of the original intent Authors of Scripture. At this point of the story in the book of Ezra, the Israelites had already finished the foundation of the temple. And you might remember that this brought a mixed reaction at the end of chapter 3. Now some people celebrated and were excited, and others who had saw the previous temple wept at the sight of this new foundation. As we read already, opposition to the people dwelling in the land. Stopped the work of the temple. This opposition came from people known as the Samaritans. And like we said, it delayed the work by almost 20 years. We see that happening in chapter four. So if we are to immerse ourselves in the perspective of this people at this point in the story, we should ask, how did they feel during this time of delay? What did they do while the work was delayed? And we see these prophets in the picture. Why did they need these guys, Haggai and Zechariah, enter into their experience? Now, we can infer the answers to these questions just by looking at the book of Ezra itself, but believe it or not, we actually have some background knowledge of the time in this story if we look to other books in the Bible, namely the whole books of Haggai and Zechariah that come at the end of the Old Testament. Looking at these books will help us fill in the blanks and enter into the experience of the Israelites at this point in their story. For example, this is from Haggai chapter one. He writes during this time of delay. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while this house lies in ruins, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is worn. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes." It's as if the Israelites were telling God, you know, God, we get it. We know you've called us to rebuild this temple and all, but listen, we got to put food on the table. And you know, you know, as well as we do, even if we tried to rebuild the temple, we wouldn't get anywhere anyway. Well, God replied to them. He says, guys, is, is that really the case? Is that really true? I see that you have plenty of time and money to work on your own houses. So you have plenty of time and money for enough food and enough drink and enough clothing. So what was really going on is that the Israelites used the delay from opposition as an excuse. They used it as an excuse to distract themselves, to delay their obedience to what God had called them to do and to do what they wanted to do instead. A recent book title, just in the title itself, is Convicting, and it captures God's convicting word to these Israelites through Haggai. The title of the book is this, Busy for Self, Lazy for God. And we throw around excuses all the time, just like the Israelites did in Haggai excuses for why we've delayed our obedience to god even we talk about how hard it is to obey god we talk about you know just i would read the bible but reading the bible is just so hard i i can't focus i can't understand it we talk about you know prayer i i I know god's called me to pray but i just don't know how it's so hard we talk about evangelism i know god's called us and sent us out into the nations to be ambassadors for christ it's just so hard i don't even know where to start But at the same time, we'll work hard, we will make sacrifices, we will take risks for our own agenda and our own priorities. We say we're busy, but at the same time, we've managed to find time for entertainment and for distraction. The bottom line is this, you make time, you put in effort, you even spend money on what you care about. So, friend is there an area of your life where you are delaying obedience to god by using excuses to focus on yourself so yeah god's call to us to love him above all else to love our neighbors as ourselves that call involves challenge it involves risk it involves sacrifice friends the call remains And the call remains in busy times and in slow times. It remains in painful times and in peaceful times. So God spoke to the Israelites to cut through their excuses. And when they still feared what obedience required and they felt sorry for themselves, well, he spoke through Zechariah the prophet that they are to go forward, not by their might or power, but by the power of his spirit. So what was the result of God's speech through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah? What was the result? Look at verse two of Ezra five. It says, they arose and began to rebuild the house and the prophets were there supporting them. This is what God did through the preaching of his word. That's why we emphasize it so much. We emphasize the preaching of the word because as Ezra 5, verses 1 to 2 display, it is the principal way God awakens, equips, and supports his people. He does it through his word. My fellow Christians, we have entered the narrow gate to life by trusting in Christ alone and now walk along the way that Jesus says is hard by following him So we have to ask, will we truly listen to God's word as we walk on this way? Maybe start by reforming how you approach Sunday mornings. Sit under the preaching of God's word, ready to grow in the faith and grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Sit under the word, ready for God to challenge you. Ready for God to awaken you, to encourage you, to equip you, and then leave here with specific ways He has done that. Well, the Israelites boarded the train of obedience to God again, but opposition threatened to toss them off this train again. So let's pick up the story in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 17. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shephar Bozenai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and that an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tappanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report, in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we want the province of, we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus: Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked for their names for your information, that we might write them down. That we, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us: We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, These, Cyrus the king, took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to the one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished." Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So we'll just recap what's been going on here. So God spoke to the Israelites and they got back on the train of obedience you can imagine they were probably energetic and enthusiastic. All right, we're back on the train. Let's go. We're ready. Let's finish this work. But not so long after, a new contingent of opposition threatened to disrupt their obedience and deflate their enthusiasm. Now, instead of the inhabitants of the land opposing them, this time, official government representatives threatened them. And they veiled their threats through intimidating questions, such as, who gave you a decree to finish this work? Who are the names of your leaders? A little bit of historical background, the Persian Empire at this time experienced revolts throughout its territories. So these government officials probably looked at the structure emerging in Jerusalem and thought that it posed a new threat of revolt. So they ask investigative questions to prepare the way of squashing a new rebellion? When was the time that you felt most joyful and energetic for the Lord? I wonder when that time was. Maybe it was when you first trusted in Christ for salvation. Maybe it was another portion of your life that's just god Revived your heart and gave you a new energy for obedience and hunger for him? When was that time? And the the next question is, what took it away? What took that time away? We thank God that the level of our faith does not save us. Rather, the object of our faith saves us. Jesus saves, not how much we believe in Jesus But as we follow Jesus and listen to God's voice by reading his word and hearing his word preached, we should know that other voices will seek to take us away. Other voices will vie for our allegiance, our attention, and our affections. Your flesh will entice you with the desires of your old life, tell you that you are missing out, The world will distract you, weigh you down, call you oppressive, call you hypocritical. The devil will bring up your past and accuse you before the Father. The Bible calls us to stand firm against these voices and assures us that we have hope when we face these voices. We see that in the Israelites. What happened to these Israelites after this new threat spoke to them? Before we get how they responded, look at verse five. Verse five assures us that they will make it through this threat. It says, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they, the the opposers, did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and that an answer should be returned by letter concerning it. So in their time of delay, God spoke to stir their obedience. And here, God sees all of their troubles. He sees them and all of their troubles. It's interesting that Ezra tells us the truth that God looked out for them before he discloses the specific way they responded to opposition. So this tells us that their wisdom and their eloquence, that's not what protected them. How well they spoke, how well they responded, how well they could think on their feet. That's not what protected them. God protected them. So with that in mind, now we can look at how they responded in verses 11 to 16. Look at these verses. These verses come in the context of this governor's letter to the king. This guy, Tatanai, and his crew told the king about the pointed questions they asked the Israelites. And the Israelites' response begins in Verse 11. So we see they made a big deal, not of themselves, but of God. They had humility in their relationship with God, called themselves servants. They recognized that God was not just the local deity of Jerusalem. That's what the foreigners around them thought God was. No, they knew that God is the God of heaven and earth. Look at up verses 11 to 16, you see that they were obedient first and foremost to God, not to people. They knew the truth about what the God of the universe had called them to do and what the God of the universe had done in the past. They knew that he had called them to build a temple and they knew that disobeying his call is wrong and it has consequences. In this response also, we see that they knew God provided for what he commanded them to do. He made provisions for it. So what was the secret sauce to the Israelites' faithful, bold, and wise response? Well, they continued to listen and focus on God's voice, not man's voice. Remember that the truth that God saw them and cared for them came before their response. Remember that Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, were there to support them and to remind them of the truth of God's promise to them. So as these threatening words from governing officials rang in their ears, God's word rang louder. Words like those from Zechariah chapter 8, where God tells them, "I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong." I wonder if you think of those words from Zechariah. If they truly listened and held on to a promise like that, they lived like it was true, like it was real. It would make them bold. It would make them confident. It would make them humble, discerning, and wise so that they could follow God faithfully among the threats and opposition and temptations from the world. And that's exactly what happened. Friends, today, know the truth and promises of God from the Word, such as God sees you, God knows you, God loves you, God has saved you through Christ, God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. Ask God to drill down the truth so deeply in your heart that it becomes the foundation to how you respond to every circumstance, even opposition. No wonder Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night, that even in the unfruitful season, even in the drought, he can blossom. So in the time of delay, God spoke to awaken and revive and support his people. And he saw them as they faced even more opposition. In the third movement of these chapters, God worked to turn curses into blessings. He works to turn curses into blessings. Let's pick back up in chapter 6 verses 1 to 12. It's where, there's no big chapter 6, but it's where there's a new number 1. So at the bottom of the second page where it says, Then Darius Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in act." Ex- Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be sixty cubits and its breadth sixty cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let gold and silver vessels from the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tephaniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its sight. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to God in heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and as his house shall be made a dunghill. And the God who has caused his name to dwell and there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. I'm just going to recap what's been going on here again. The Israelites claimed that they had legal grounds to rebuild the temple because of a decree of a previous king. This guy called Cyrus. Now the governor of their province asked the current king to verify this claim. So King Darius, the current king, researched and found the Israelites told the truth. Cyrus did give this decree. Think about it. The Israelites could have told a different story than what they told. Could have told a different story to their accusers. But they stuck with the truth. God calls us to do the same, to reflect the God of truth by being relentlessly truthful. We see Darius took action. He told the officials who wrote to him to keep away from the work to rebuild the temple. He understood that they were the biggest threat to its completion. So Darius fully funded the rebuild project and said they should have whatever they needed to complete it without fail and without delay, whether it was materials for sacrifice or whether it was materials for the building. And this was more than lip service we see at the end of uh, Darius's letter. He enforced this edict by threat of brutal capital punishment. Now, what's the point of all this? Chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, Darius's letter. Well, Darius did what he should have done. You know, the king should honor the law. The king should honor and carry out the rights of the citizens. But like Cyrus before him, Darius acted out of self-interest. You notice that he, he wanted this to be done so that people could pray for his success and his son's success. He did it to keep the peace he did it to keep israel's god at bay so the true hero is the one who is behind the scenes god himself god worked in his sovereign power and plan to use the opposition against his people to bless his people think about this if the governor this tetanai guy and his cronies never threatened the Israelites and inquired of the king to investigate them, then the Israelites would have never received the king's support, funding, and protection. If they hadn't received opposition, they wouldn't have received that help from the king. God turned the opposition into blessing. We sang this line earlier. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. The clouds of opposition that threatened the rebuilding of the temple actually turned out to secure the completion of the temple. Though we notice the Israelites' resilience to listen to God's word in the face of threat and opposition. And here, their faith was well-founded. I wonder though, if we were in the Israelites' shoes, or their sandals probably, how would you have responded to these new threats and opposition? How many of us would have sulked in pessimism and self pity and say, you know, this kind of stuff always happens to me? As soon as things start going well, the rug gets pulled out right from under my. How many of us would have moaned in despair and hopelessness and focus on all that stands against us and forget the one who stands for us. Several of us have faced alarming medical diagnoses, some within the last couple weeks. Most of us are sick of COVID-19. Many of us do not like the direction of the country where we live, and the life of our church, you know, the potential church merger, has received overwhelming encouragement and support, but I know, especially from several conversations I've had, that many have started to notice the challenges of this new direction and have pushed back a little, which is okay, by the way. But all of these, whether medical diagnoses, whether COVID-19, whether a country's direction, whether a church merger, all of these appear to be dark clouds that we dread. So fearful, pessimistic, despairing saints take up fresh courage. There is no dark cloud. There is no setback. There is no failure. There is no challenge. There is no tragedy. There is no disappointment that God cannot turn to bless his people. God used the opposition intended to stop the temple to build the temple. God used the cross intended to kill and get rid of Jesus, the Messiah, to bring salvation to everyone who would believe. Friends, we believe all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So in the last section of Ezra chapters 5 to 6, we see that in the time of delay, God redeems, God redeems We'll close out chapter six. Look at verses thirteen to twenty-two. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shetharbosai and, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, they finished their building by the decree of God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions, and the Levites in their divisions, for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, they ret- the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests for themselves it was eaten by the people of israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the lord the god of israel and they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy for the lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of god the god of israel So from the time God called them to action through the prophet Haggai to the time the work of the temple was completed, it's just about four years, a little over four years. This rebuilding project took faith. We've seen already, it began in hard times, it had small beginnings, and it endured ominous investigations and threats. But now the work was done. So the governor and the officials who investigated the Israelites ended up diligently carrying out the king's decree not to get in the way and to give them everything that they needed to finish the work. The elders of the Israelites, the lesser leaders of Israel, they took up the work and they finished it. We see that prophets supported them, as did earthly kings, but we see also God was the ultimate reason they finished the work. So after they completed the temple, they dedicated it. They celebrated the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. Just in the last couple paragraphs of chapter 6, there are a few details we should notice. First detail is that the dedication of the second temple was puny compared to the dedication of the first temple, the temple that Solomon built in 1 Kings. Look again at verse 17 here. We get some stats about the number of animals sacrificed. At the dedication of Solomon's temple in first kings, you know how many animals they sacrificed? Try 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Boy, this is a far cry from what they once were. This was what remained from their former glory. And that brings us to notice a second detail, the sin offering. Israel recognized that they fell from their glory days because of their sin. They recognized also that their sin brought more consequences than losing the good old days. Their sin separated them from God and made them guilty in his sight. But God gave them the temple in which he dwelt and where Israel could offer sacrifices to atone for their sin. Us Christians, we know the ultimate way God would come to earth and make his presence known, and the ultimate way God would provide the full and final sacrifice for sin is through Jesus, God the Son incarnate. Though we have sinned against God and are now separated from him and under his judgment, Jesus' death reconciles us to God. Oh friend, would you have peace with God today? Then trust in Jesus as your substitute As the sacrifice for your sins. Third detail to notice in these last couple paragraphs of chapter 6 is that anybody can have peace with God and belong to his people. Look at verse 21. Even those who weren't Israelites were cleansed and joined in the worship of the one true God, even those who were on the outside. Last week, we saw that the Israelites wouldn't let outsiders partake in their work to rebuild the temple. But here in chapter 6, verse 21, it tells us that this wasn't because there was no hope for the outsider. No, God has always had a heart for the outsider. Whether it was Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute in the book of Joshua, or Ruth, the Moabite woman who used to worship pagan gods, still today... God is in the business of bringing outsiders to himself, of granting them repentance and new life. Jesus said, whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. So know today, if you do not have peace with God, you are not beyond his reach. God has a heart for the outsider. But beyond these small details, in the closing paragraphs of chapter six, there is something that comes out and shines the brightest. And that's joy. See the repetition of that throughout this section? Verse 16, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Verse 22, and they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of God. Of Israel. You might know Bible background knowledge, the Passover commemorates God delivering Israel from Egypt. And through Jeremiah and other prophets, God warned of exile. But he also promised a greater exodus that would surpass the former one. These celebrations here in Ezra 6 at the rebuilt temple. They celebrate a new exodus, but they anticipate a greater one still, one where God will deliver his people not from their human captors, but from their captivity to sin. Many of the Israelites in Ezra 6, we remember, wept at the sight of the uh, new temple's foundation. But now we read here at the end of Ezra 6, there's no sign of weeping, only joy, these were people who were once held captive, who were once hopeless, who were once sinful, but now they're restored. Now they are joyful. Now they're forgiven. That's all because God redeems. God redeems. If they had reason for joy for what God had done for them, we have more if we have doubts about what remains unfinished and uncertain about our lives and the world around us, let this moment of joy here at the completed temple spur us on to obey the word and trust that God will finish what he has started. He will sanctify us completely. He will make all things new. And he will bring us into his presence Where there is fullness of joy Let's pray Well Lord When we When we attempt to Interpret and respond To our circumstances Apart from you That brings us to a bad place Brings us to doubt It brings us to despair, it brings us to to negativity, brings us to anger and questioning. But we want to remember the truth, that you speak, that you still speak through your word. We want to remember the truth that you see, you always see us. We want to remember the truth that you work even through the bad circumstances in our lives, and you work them together for good. We see proof of that here in the completion of the second temple. We see proof of that at the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the God who redeems. You redeem people who are once hopeless and sinful and have given them joy and forgiveness and made us your own. Thank you, Lord, for this great truth about who you are and what you have done. May you drill it down deep into our hearts so that we may live As it is true. In Jesus' name we pray.